We're continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel of John. I've titled the whole series, The Message Became Flesh. There are some themes that seem to be repeating over and over in this gospel. Have you ever focused on the wrong thing? Maybe you're a husband and you've planned this wonderful anniversary date night with your wife. You go to this really fancy schmancy restaurant you really can't afford and they bring out the wrong appetizer. And it just bugs you so much. You spend the whole rest of the evening evening complaining about the appetizer to the point that your wife cannot enjoy the evening. Or maybe you're a kid and your parents plan a wonderful road trip. They spend money. You don't even have any idea how much it costs to do this because you're a kid. You don't know what it costs to do things. But they plan this great family trip, Route 66, all the stops, all the amazing national parks. But you don't really get much out of it because you spend the whole trip on your phone watching TikTok videos of people supposedly having a great time. Maybe you come to a worship service supposedly, to worship God. But you get so preoccupied with the choice of songs, who's on stage, what they're wearing, you forget all about worshiping God with all your heart in the fellowship of his people. It's easy to focus on the wrong thing and miss out. And that's what happens to the people we're looking at in today's passage. We're in John chapter 9, verses 8 through 23. I've titled the message, Focusing on the wrong thing. Let's start reading in verse 8. Therefore the neighbors and those who had seen him before that he was a beggar were saying, Isn't this the one who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, This is he? Others were saying, Nah, but it looks like him. He was saying, It is I. So they were asking him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man, the one named Jesus, made mud, applied it to my eyes, and he told me, go to Siloam and wash. Therefore, having gone and washed, I received sight. And they told him, where is he? He says, I don't know. We're picking up, obviously, in the middle of a story. There's a lot going on in chapter 9, so I've kind of broken it down into different pieces. But last week we saw in the first nine verses of chapter 9 how Jesus heals this man who had been blind from birth. And this is the immediate aftermath of that. He is healed and he comes back from the pool of Siloam seeing for the first time in his entire life. And then the neighbors, the people who live in the vicinity of the temple, who have been there their whole lives and have seen this guy his whole life long as a blind kid grow up among them. And now that he's an adult, he's begging for alms because that's all he can seem to do in this society. And they say, wait a minute, that guy's walking. Clearly he sees what he's doing, where he's going. He's not groping around. Isn't that the guy that we used to see sitting there begging by the temple. And it wasn't just neighbors, people who had seen him before, people who were familiar with him and knew that he was a beggar. He was a staple figure there in the temple area. And they're, wow, that can't be. This guy's been blind since I've known he existed. And some are saying, you know what, that is him. 
And others, perhaps a little bit more skeptical, are saying, no, it can't be him. I mean, he obviously sees. The guy we're talking about can't see. He's blind as a bat. It, it, it can't be him, but boy, he sure is a dead ringer for him. Looks a lot like him. And he speaks up and says, no, yeah, it's me. I'm the guy you're talking about. So they ask him, how, how did this happen? Unlike the paralytic that Jesus healed, this guy actually had been paying attention. So as Jesus walks up and the disciples have this big theological question, who sinned, him or his parents? And uh, he's kind of a case study for their philosophy of religion class. And uh, Jesus says it's not his sin, it's not his parents. God is going to work in his life. That's why God allowed his blindness, because he was going to do something about it. And uh, then he turns to the disciples and tells them, you know what, we need to be doing the works of the one who sent me while it's day. Night's coming. You're not going to be able to do this always. There's a limited window of opportunity to join God in what he's doing in the darkness of this world. And then he turns to the man and proceeds to heal him. Spits on the ground, makes mud, puts it on his eyes, says, go to Siloam and wash. And the man does it and is healed. The details of this story are so mundane. All Jesus used was spit and dirt, dust. You know, that stuff on the ground. We step all over it, don't think anything of it. He couldn't have picked less glamorous materials to work with. And the simplicity of it, just put it on his eyes. Go wash at the nearby public pool. That's what Jesus used to do something astounding that completely changed everything about this man's life. But he had paid attention and, and knew the name of the guy who did this as he was talking with his disciples and using this as a teaching moment for them. And before he healed him, he caught all of that and says, yeah, there's this guy. They call him Jesus. He's the guy who said do all this. And by the time this chapter's over, he's going to be tired of repeating this story. People ask him to repeat it over and over again. Let's read verse 13. They bring the one who had been blind to the Pharisees. Verse 14. Now the day in which Jesus made mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. There's a writer named Tom Thatcher who calls this narrative irony in John. And he does it on both of the Sabbath healings. He did it uh, when he told us about Jesus healing the man who had been a paralytic for 38 years. Uh, the whole thing happens. He heals him. All this, uh, the glorious story is told and, uh, told and finished. And then at the tail end of it, John says, oh, by the way, Jesus did this on a Sabbath. Same thing here. We get the whole conversation. Who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus correcting them and saying, no, this one was just a random, uh, horrible thing that happened to a person and God is intervening to do something glorious in this man's life. But don't look for blame in this particular circumstance. It, it, it has nothing to do with that. And Jesus heals him. And we, we read this whole story and we put ourselves in the, in the shoes of this man who's been blind his whole life through no fault of his own or his parents. It was just a random, cruel thing that happens in this horrible world we live in. 
And how Jesus has said, you know, God is going to do something about this. God is at work in the midst of this. And uh, the way God worked in this particular circumstance is that by healing him completely. That may or may not be the way God chooses to intervene in the suffering of every particular circumstance. But the, the teaching that God is committed to intervene where there is suffering, I think, is a global truth. A universal truth to any who are willing to receive it. We read that story and we think, wow, God is so good. God sent Jesus to come across this man and bring him back his sight. He has changed everything about this man's life and he has ended once and for all the constant speculation about who was to blame for his blindness. Sometimes we have such a morbid fascination with assigning blame that we completely overlook the suffering that people are enduring. God fixes the whole thing. And it's only now that John says, oh, by the way, Jesus did this on a Sabbath. Now, if you were a first century observant Jew, you would immediately feel compelled to go back and reevaluate this whole story. You say, wait a minute. The rabbis say that you're not supposed to intervene medically in people's afflictions on the Sabbath unless the person in question is in danger of death. If it's to save life, then you can perform your services as a physician to bring healing to a person who is going to die otherwise. That trumps Sabbath rest. Also, it was very clear, you know, they had very strict rules about working stuff. You couldn't cook on the Sabbath. You couldn't knead dough, and you certainly wouldn't be making mud out of spit on the ground on the Sabbath. That would be considered uh, to be working something, to be kneading something, and applying it uh, as it were some kind of a medicinal uh, thing. All of this is forbidden on Sabbath by the rabbis. And you find yourself in the incongruity of having to reevaluate something you understood as a good act of God and going back and saying, wait, wait, no. That can't be a good act of God. And my reason for saying that is piety. Do you get the irony that, that John is trying to bring out in the reader here? That all of a sudden you have to go back and reevaluate the whole thing and cast it in a negative light just because he did it on a Sabbath. That's the big question in these controversies, and it runs through a big portion of John's gospel. How do we understand God's rules about Sabbath rest? And there are at least two ways to focus on this question. One is to focus um, on the what. What does the law say? It says, do not work on the Sabbath. This is a day of rest to God. Do your work the other six days of the week, but on the Sabbath you will not work. And if you focus just on that, then you do the rabbinic approach of going through every possible instance and getting a respected rabbi to give a ruling. 
What about this? What about that? What if this happens? Can I do this? And rabbis listen and then they say, well, no, that counts as work. This isn't the, to, to where to this day we end up with the question, should you do something as simple as press an elevator button on the Sabbath? You know, in Israel, on the Sabbath, the elevator stops at every floor automatically because there are observant Jews who do not want to offend God by working on the Sabbath and pressing that button to call the elevator. You can focus on the what. I think a more productive way to understand God's commandments is to focus on the why. Why did God say this? What is the purpose of the commandment? One way, God is primarily concerned with behavior. If you focus on the what, all God wants is for you to behave certain ways. And the rule is, do this, don't do this. And as long as you just follow the rules and do the things God wants of you, you will have behaved according to his will, and then he will give you the blessings only God can give. That's the way a lot of uh, Jews understood the covenant of the Old Testament. Another way to look at it, is that God isn't as much concerned about behavior as us. What if God's interest is that we love him as he loves us and that he teach us to love each other as he loves us? I think Jesus said that's exactly what the whole Bible is about. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Love God with all you've got. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. The reason for every commandment in the Bible has something to do with helping us do those two things. So if we focus on the why, I think we get a better idea. Why did God tell us not to work on the Sabbath? Because it is a day holy to God. It belongs to Him. It is his day. It's a day for him, not for me. I can earn money the other six days. I can worry about providing for myself and my family the other six days. But this day belongs to God and it's not about me. It's about him and whatever is important to him. And Jesus went out of his way to break the rules that people had built up around Sabbath. Because he wanted us to discover the intent of Sabbath. Notice when this whole discussion began, Jesus said his parents, he didn't sin, his parents didn't sin. It wasn't that that caused this blindness. This blindness is so that the works of God could be shown in him. Jesus knew it was Sabbath. And he knew very deliberately when he called what he was about to do, the works of God, and then turned to his disciples and said, we have to be doing the works of the one who sent me while it is day. He was very clearly showing to everybody watching that God works on Sabbath and that he expects us to join him. I have a question from these verses. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, a work of God. What do you think Jesus is telling us about what God means by Sabbath rest? 
Let's continue, verse 15. So the Pharisees also were asking him again how he had received sight. And he told them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. So some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God, for he does not keep Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said that he is a prophet. So the Pharisees now, they bring this man before the Pharisees because it happened on a Sabbath and they expect them to somehow explain this. So they start interviewing him and again he has to tell the story again, put mud on my eyes, wash, see, got it. And then immediately the, the discussion begins among the Pharisees. Some of them are right off the bat say, okay, well, this guy's not from God. Because according to Rabbi so-and-so, you can't do the things he just did. And if you're disobeying God on the Sabbath, then you can't be God's person. You have to be somebody working in con uh, contradiction to God's will. Others, I think, had their focus on the right thing, not so much on the commandment itself, but on the God who gave the commandment. They know that people can't heal people that are born blind. If you're born blind, you can't just walk by, put some mud on their eyes and say, go wash, and poof, they can see. You can't do that. We human beings do not have the ability to do that. God can do that kind of thing. We can't. And this guy, had, before he did all this, said, these are the works of God. Then he puts something as simple as spit mud on his eyes. Go wash off. Clearly, spit mud doesn't heal blindness. But God does. So if this guy's claiming, I'm doing the works of God, and the guy actually gets healed miraculously, these guys are saying, how can a sinner, how can a man who is contrary to what God wants, who is breaking God's law, how can he do stuff like this? How is it that God is using his power to back his claims and make what he's saying happen? Doesn't make any sense. So they're divided. So they say, well, let's just ask the guy himself. Let's see what his take is on this. And his answer is very simple. I believe that he is a prophet. In the Greek, this does not have the definite article. So it's not, I believe that he is the prophet. You know, there was this thing Moses said in Deuteronomy. God will raise up another one like me from among you, a prophet like me. You must listen to him when he shows up. And since Moses, they had been waiting for the prophet. He's not talking about that. He's not saying Jesus is the prophet, although he was, in fact, the prophet. But uh, he, I don't think he's aware at this point all he knows is this guy was talking to people who had a morbid curiosity in his tragedy. And he said, God is going to work in this man's life. And then he proceeded to heal him. You know, two and two adds up to four. He knew enough to say, that's the kind of thing people like Elijah, Elisha, you know, Moses. That kind of people do, do stuff like that. People God has sent to work and to speak on earth. 
I think he's a prophet. I think God sent him to do this. Now, by the time this story is done, he's going to know that Jesus is a lot more than just a prophet. But at this point, that's all he knows. Yeah, this guy is not contrary to God. He is on God's side. God is using him. I have a question from these verses. God did a great work in healing a man born blind. But the religious leaders were angry that Jesus had broken Sabbath rest in doing so. How have you seen passion for the things of God get in the way of what God is actually up to? Let's keep reading verse 18. So the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received sight until they called his parents of the one who had received sight and asked them, saying, This is your son whom you say was born blind. So how is it that he now sees? So his parents answered and said, We know this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be the Christ, they would be banished from the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So all this happens. The man says he's a prophet. And they, they don't want to accept that. So they think, you know what? Maybe this whole thing is just a scam. This guy was pretending to be blind. He showed up a week ago pretending to be blind and begging for alms. And then today they staged it so that he could poof, uh, tell everybody, oh, I've been healed. And, and do one of these, uh, you know, uh, healing service uh, performances, you know. Maybe it's just a big scam and we can just dismiss Jesus as yet another uh, trickster, another charlatan. So they call in his parents. They try to intimidate them. They say, okay guys, here's your son. You guys say he was born blind, right? Clearly he sees. What's going on? What are you guys trying to pull? And we know that the parents were intimidated. This wasn't, and John, when John says the Jews in his gospel, it's his shorthand for the religious leadership. So don't, don't apply this to all Jews. Uh, Jesus was very loved by a lot of Jews. Uh, so it isn't the Jewish people as a whole that rejected Jesus, but it, there was a universal rejection of Jesus among the leadership with the shining exceptions of Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Everybody else in every sphere of Jewish leadership turned against Jesus. So think that. When you're reading the Gospel of John and he talks about the Jews, uh, he's specifically referring to this leadership that is hostile to Jesus. These are the ones who called in the parents 
And the, the parents are afraid of these guys. These are the guys that are in the Sanhedrin. These are the guys that run the city. And uh, they have already decided among themselves that if anybody stands out and says, Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Christ, then they're going to ostracize them and cast them out of the synagogue. The synagogue was where you went every day for Torah. It's, it was the heart of Jewish social life. It was the kiss of social death to be banished from synagogue. And they're terrified. And they decide, we'll just, we'll just say what we know, we'll speak the truth, and we'll get out of the way. And hopefully, we, they won't focus their anger on us. So they tell them the simple facts. Yes, this is our son. Yes, he was born blind. That's all we can tell you. We have no idea why he sees now. That's bizarre. I have no idea who did it. But guess what? He is older than 13. He could have been as young as that, but I suspect he's older than 13. But in Jewish thought, as soon as you had your bar mitzvah, you were considered able to answer for yourself. But surely he's a young adult, I would think, at least. He's old enough to speak for himself. Leave us out of it. Ask him. I find it tragic that these parents are not overjoyed at what God has done in the life of their son. And surely their whole lives long they had borne the shame of people asking questions like the disciples asked Jesus. Whose fault was it that this boy was born blind? What did these parents do that so deeply offended God that this child was cursed with blindness from the moment he was born. How bad a parent can you be? How bad a person can you be for God to do something like that? They had dealt with that their whole lives long, but God has ended the stigma. This man is healed by the finger of God. God, if he was angry, has clearly communicated that he's no longer angry. Although Jesus makes it clear that God was never angry to begin with. But even if that had been the case, it's clearly now over. They should be dancing in the streets. Their son can finally stop begging. He can get a job. He can find a wife, build a family, live a normal life. Why aren't they Bursting with joy. They're less impressed with what God has done than with the intimidating factor of the men of power in their city. And they're so worried about what these powerful men might do to them that they throw their son to the wolves. You guys ask him, you have a problem, I don't want anything to do with it. Leave us out of it. I have a final question. The blind man's parents were so afraid of what the Pharisees thought that they didn't even rejoice at their son's healing. How have you let what others think rob you of good things God is up to in your life? How messed up is this story? 
This man has lived his entire life blind as a bat, through no fault of his own, no fault of his parents. It was just a random tragedy that hit him for no reason. Finally, God has intervened. He can see. The darkness is over. He can see completely. You would think his parents would be overjoyed with him. But they're not. Because they're afraid of what the Jewish leadership might do to them if they say something nice about the man who healed their son. What about the religious leaders? Their whole lives, they have devoted themselves to telling people about the God who parted the Red Sea, who was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, leading the Israelites through the wilderness, who miraculously fed them manna every morning for 40 years. The God of great signs and wonders, after centuries of silence, has finally started doing them again. Why aren't they excited? Why aren't they happy that they can now tell the people they've been teaching for so long, look, God is at work just the way we told you He is. They were too worried about what they had been teaching and their understanding of God's rules. That when Jesus broke them, they loved that more than God at work among them. Maybe you've had the same problem. Maybe you've focused on the rules and lost sight of the God who seeks relationship. Maybe you're so afraid of what other people might say that you can't let yourself enjoy what God's up to in your life. If that, either of those things describe you, let me encourage you to be done with all of that. Just let go and let Jesus do the good things he wants to do in your life. And let him recruit you to become a part, a participant with him in the good things God is up to in the world. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much that our suffering matters to you. And you're not like us. When people suffer, you don't speculate about it. You don't just look to assign blame. You are ready to step in and do good in the middle of our suffering. God, thank you so much that you are the way you are. And forgive us for so many times abusing what the instructions you've given us and using them in such a way that rather than honoring you, we dishonor you. Help us, God, to understand who you are and why you've given us the instructions you've given us. Lord, help us to fear you alone and not be intimidated by any human being. God, do your good work in our lives.
and make us a part of the good work you're doing in each other's lives. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.